Chapter 11 of Observations of an Orderly. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Observations of an Orderly by Ward Muir. Chapter 11 The Recreation Rooms. We rather pride ourselves, at the Third London, on the fame of our hospital not merely as a place in which the wounded get well, but as a place in which they also have a good time. The two things, truth to tell, are interlinked, a truism which might seem to need no labouring, were it not for the evidence brought from more rigid and red-tape-ridden establishments. A couple of our most valued departments are the old rec and the new rec, the old and new recreation rooms. The new recreation room, a spacious and well-built hut, contains three billiard-tables, a library, and current newspapers, British and colonial. This room is the scene of whist-drives, billiard and pool tournaments, and other sociable ongoings. Sometimes there is an exhibition match on the best billiard-table. The local champion of Wandsworth shows us his skill, and a very pretty touch he has. Once the lady billiard-champion of England came, and defeated the best opponent we could enlist against her, an event which provoked tremendous applause from a packed congregation of boys in blue. The old recreation room is fitted with a permanent stage for theatricals and concerts. It is also our movie palace. I think our hospital was the first to install a cinematograph as a fixture. During the morning the floor area is dotted with miniature billiard tables, which are never for a moment out of use. In the afternoon these are removed, some hundreds of chairs replace them, and at four-thirty we begin an entertainment. Music, a play, we have had Shakespeare here, lantern slides, films, or what not. Those entertainments which have continued unbrokenly since the hospital began to function in 1914 constitute the outstanding feature of the good time enjoyed by third Londoners. The old wreck and its crowded concerts will be a memory cherished by hosts of fighting men from the homeland and from overseas. In the original hospital plan, drawn up before the war, the old wreck, which is a part of the main school building, was marked down to be a ward of forty beds. Its structure, its internal geography, and the sheer impossibility of providing it with the essential sanitary conveniences, would make it unsuitable to be a ward of four beds, let alone of forty. On this account its allotment for recreation purposes would be excusable. But the old wreck, and the new wreck too, for that matter, justify their superficial waste of bed space on other, and unanswerable grounds. It is a mere matter of common sense to arrange some centre to which the patient can repair and employ his leisure when he is sufficiently well to potter about, though not well enough to be discharged from hospital. Instead of idling in his ward, and disturbing the patients who are still confined to bed, and who often are urgently in need of quietness, the convalescent departs to one or other of the recreation rooms, morning and afternoon, where he can make as much noise as he likes, and where he can meet and fraternize with his comrades from every front. What exchanging of stories those recreation rooms have witnessed! On the one hand, then, the seriously ill patient is not annoyed by the rovings in the ward of the walking patients, and on the other the walking patients are not irked by the necessity for keeping quiet, 
at a period when returning health stimulates them to a wholesome desire for fun. Both kinds of patients, thus, may legitimately be said to get better more quickly than they would have had a chance to do, were it not for the recreation rooms. It is within the writer's knowledge that the medical staff of the hospital, on being consulted as to the bed value of the recreation rooms, unanimously agreed that their existence reduced the average sojourn of the hospital's inmates by a definite per-day ratio. That ratio, so far from showing a bed-space waste, worked out at a per-annum gain of bed-space equivalent to a ward, if such a colossal ward could be conceived, of upwards of three hundred beds. So much for a point which might not appear to be worth detailed explanation, but which has here been glanced at in order that critics, for unbelievable though it sounds, there have been curmudgeons to growl of spoiling the wounded by too much pleasure, may be answered in advance. The recreation rooms are a paying investment both to the hospital and to the state. This is our trump card in any spoiling the wounded controversy, though I dare say that most of us would not, in any case, care tuppence whether the concerts and films and billiards were an investment or an extravagance. Nothing would stand in the way of our ambition to provide the now proverbial good time for all the guests of the third London. Scores of concerts of an excellence which would have been noteworthy anywhere have been presented to our assemblages of wounded in the old wreck. Singers, musicians, actors and actresses have come and given of their best. Miss Hulla's Music in Wartime Committee, that delightful body, and Mr. Howard Williams' parties are perhaps our greatest regular standbys. Certain sections of the public know Mr. Howard Williams' name as a famous one in other fields of activity. To thousands of soldiers it is honoured as that of the man who tirelessly organised scrumptious tea-parties, Pierrot shows, exhibition boxing contests, nigger troop entertainments, a list of jollifications, indoors in winter and in the open air in summer, infinite in variety and guaranteed never once to fall flat. A curious empire reputation, this of Mr. Williams. Yesterday, for instance, a nigger troop visited the hospital. To be exact, they were the Metropolitan Police Minstrels, by permission of Sir E. R. Henry, G.C.V.O., K.C.B., C.S.I. Commissioner. But no member of the audience, I imagine, could picture those jocose blackamoors with their tambourines and bones as really being anything so serious as traffic-controlling constables. That their comic songs were accompanied by a faultless orchestra was understandable enough. One can believe in a police band. One is not surprised that the police band is a good band. To believe that the ebony-visaged person with the huge red india-rubber flexible mouth who sings Under the Archway Archibald and follows this amorous ditty with a clog-dance is, in his washed moments, the terror of burglars, requires unthinkable flights of imagination. As I gazed at this singular resurrection of Moore and Burgess and breathless childhood's afternoons at the St. James Hall, the half-circle of inanely alert faces the colour of fresh, polished boots, the preposterous uniforms and expansive shirt-fronts, the nigger dialect, which this strange convention demands, but which cannot be said to resemble the speech of any African tribe yet discovered, I found that by no effort of faith or credulity 
could I pierce the disguise and perceive policemen. It is at least twenty years since I met a nigger minstrel in the flesh. Vague ghosts of bygone persons and of piquant anachronisms seemed to float approvingly in the air. The Prince Consort, Bustles, the High Bicycle, Sherry, Moody and Sankey, the Crystal Palace, La Bouchere, Pigs in Clover, Lottie Collins, Evolution, Bimetallism, hosts of forgotten images, names, and shibboleths came popping out from the brain's dusty pigeonholes, magically released by the spectacle of the nigger troop. Yes, I was indeed switched into the past by Mr. Bones, Massa Johnson, and the rest. And yet the present might have seemed more emphatic and more poignant. One felt, rather than saw, an audience of several hundred persons in the dim rows of chairs, and laughing at the broad witticisms of the niggers, or enjoying their choruses and orchestral accompaniments, one forgot just what that half-glimpsed audience consisted of, what it meant, and how it came to be here assembled. Of course, when the lights were turned up in the interval, one beheld the usual spectacle. Stretchers, wheeled chairs, crutches, bandaged heads, arms in splints, blind men, men with one arm, men with one leg, rank on rank of wars flotsam and jetsam, British, Australians, New Zealanders, Newfoundlanders, Canadians, come to make merry over the minstrels. In the front row the colonel and the matron, with officer patients, here and there an orderly, or a V.A.D., here and there a sister, with her boys. It was a family gathering. I descried no strangers, and no one not in uniform, unless you count the men too ill to don their blue slops. These had been brought in dressing-gowns, or wrapped in blankets. No mere haphazard audience, this, of anybody and everybody who chooses to pay at a turnstile. Entrance to this hall is free, but the price is beyond money all the same. A family party it was, decidedly. Thick fumes of tobacco-smoke uprose from it. Shall we ever abandon the cigarette habit now? Orderlies continued to arrive and stow themselves discreetly in corners. By some strange providence each orderly had found that for a while he could be spared from ward or office. Staff sergeants, sergeants, corporals, mysteriously they made time to leave their various departments. Even a bevy of masseuses, those experts eternally on the rush from ward to ward, had peeped in to see the nigger minstrels. And everybody was pleased. Every jest and every conundrum got its laugh, every ballad its applause. Not that we ever give the bird to those who come to amuse us. Offer us skill in any shape or form, pierrots, niggers, pianist, violinist, conjurer, ventriloquist, dancer, reciter, any or all of these will be appreciated warmly. Yesterday, for the nigger minstrels, there were no empty chairs. Until, in the midst of part two, a laughable sketch, vide the programme, wherein female roles were doubly coy by reason of the masculinity of their falsetto dialogue and remarkable ankles, a messenger stole hither and thither, whispering to the orderlies, who promptly tiptoed from the room. A convoy of new arrivals demanded our presence. The silent ambulances were gliding up to the entrance of the hospital. Orderlies, fetched from their jobs and from the entertainment, lined up in the rain to take their places in the quartets of bearers, 
who lifted out the stretchers. The assistant matron, standing in the shelter of the door, checked her list. The medical officer handed out the ward tickets. The lady clerks from the admission and discharge office took the patient's particulars. And the bathroom became very busy. As I started to wheel a much-bandaged warrior to his ward, the recreation-room door opened, and a burst of music cum essence of nigger emerged on his astonished ears. I was a little doubtful as to whether our new guest would not think his reception somewhat flippant in key. The poor fellow was visibly suffering, and the sound of tambourines and comedians' guffaws seemed a scarcely proper comment on his condition. I might have spared myself these misgivings. "'Say, chum,' he interrogated me feebly, "'what's that noise?' "'Nigger minstrels, old man.' "'Golly! And have I got to go straight to my bed?' Alas, he had to. It would be long before he could be well enough to be taken to one of our entertainments, but had he been given his way, he would have gone direct from his fatiguing overseas journey into the old wreck to join the family party and chuckle at Mr. Bones and Massa Johnson. No doubts assailed his mind as to whether it was right to waste bed space on mere frivolities. A nigger minstrel show was to him a deal more important, in fact, than his wound, and perhaps, in instinct, he was not far wrong. End of chapter 11 Read by Kara Schallenberg www.kray.org On July 27, 2009, in San Diego, California